Welcome to the Authors Who Lead podcast. This podcast is dedicated to you, people who want to be inspired by authors, leaders, and the messages they share. This is such an important podcast to us because we help uncover what goes on behind the scenes when authors are writing their book. We talk about the process. We talk about where they get big ideas, and you can listen in on those conversations. We can't wait for you to join us. So let's get started. Hey, everyone. Asul Tronis here from Authors Who Lead, back with another amazing guest. This particular guest, I already feel like I know her. She's a former lieutenant colonel, a commander in the U.S. Air Force, Uchenna Ume, a medical doctor, MBA, affectionately known as Dr. Dr. Lulu, the momtrician. She's Nigerian-born, board-certified pediatrician, global speaker on youth suicide prevention, three-time best-selling author and mother of three. She's the CEO of Teen Alive and Dr. Lulu's Youth Health Center, both dedicated to at-risk youth and youth suicide prevention. Her speaking career followed by a suicide attempt by a seven-year-old patient and suicide of colleagues and a patient. She is a United Nations and 2020 TEDx speaker, TV consultant, freelance writer. She has dedicated her life's work to ending youth suicide, which is something really dear to my heart. She is a parent and teen motivational speaker and life coach. She also coaches book writing and speaking. And her work has been recognized by Nigerian Disparian Commission of Nigeria and the Texas State House of Representatives. She's been featured in the Washington Post, Parents Magazine, has been interviewed by the History Channel. She's the author of How to Teach Your Kids About Racism. I'm so grateful and glad to have you here, Dr. Lulu. Welcome. Thank you. Was that me? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I'm famous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you are famous. You're famous to me because as we were talking, you realize you meet people in life for a reason whether they be in a circumstance you didn't expect or in person. And I feel like this is one of those moments. Yeah. Uh, so thank you for being a guest. You know, I've been dedicating myself the last several years to interview authors, but more importantly, women and people of color, because I want to have voices of people that sometimes traditional media kind of suppresses, silence or doesn't let them stand out. And this topic in this year, or the year that we've had in 2020 and now into 2021, where we talk about racism, particularly how we talk to our children and helping children. Before we talk about that book, tell us about this transition. I mean, you're obviously very well educated. You had a career in the military, but moving over to public speaking about suicide is a big mission and a, and a huge shift from the work you're probably doing as a pediatrician. Yes. Thank you so much for asking. And thank you so much for having me. I can't believe I'm on Asul's podcast. <laughs> I cannot believe that I am on Asul's podcast. So yeah, but so first of all, yes, I am a pediatrician. I like to describe myself as born, bred, buttered, and slightly burned in Nigeria. And I came here as a bright-eyed and bushy-tailed um, well, intern because I went to do my, I came to do my housemanship at Howard University Hospital, HU in the house, Kamala Harris. <laughs> yes, ma'am. All right. So that happened. And then I got married. And then we moved to the Carolinas and I started my practice. I had the one son and then another and another, two brothers. And then, of course, you know, sometimes you have dreams that are made of these and then the these just don't work out. So I got divorced and I bundled my three little pigs, like I like to call them, estres hijos. And we, <laughs> we just kind of marched down to Texas. I joined the Air Force and the rest is history. But while I was still in private practice, when I was seven months pregnant with my second hijo, Lo and behold, I kept thinking about a friend of mine. And I was like, I need to call this chica. I need to call this chica. I need to call this chica. I never called her. And then one day I was like, okay, that's it. I'm calling this chica. And I call her and her niece tells me, oh, 
and so and so blew her brains out three weeks ago. I'm like, no, no, she didn't. Mm. And I went into labor with my second son from the news. That was my first contact with suicide. She was my friend. She was Nigerian. She was a surgical resident. She was in second year. And we did housemanship together in Nigeria. I know her. Not that she was my best friend, but she was friendly enough for me to, to, for a spirit to come and tell me to call her. But I didn't. So needless to say, I don't do that anymore. Okay. I am the one person that when people come to America, my friends from Nigeria, wherever, if you want to find someone, if you don't, if you don't know where they are, I know where they are. If we went to school together, I know where they are. I check on everybody now. Yeah. Call me that, but I do. But that's because I, I lost someone that I really should have checked. I don't know if I could have stopped her. I don't know what I would have done because I didn't get a chance to. Yeah. And I had a 15-year-old boy who came to see me with his mother. We're going to call him Michael. His mom was like, check him for drugs. And I was like, okay. So we checked him for drugs and it was negative. I said, like, well, why do you want to check? Well, you know, he's acting different. He's giving away his stuff. And he, you know, he's a quarterback in football and he doesn't want to play football anymore. I mean, he's got to be drugs. What else can he be? Well, what else can he be? Chad was very depressed. His depression skill was 23 out of 27. So he was really off the charts. And when I told his mother that he was depressed, she said, oh, that's it? And I'm like, what? She said, that's all? I said, yes. She's like, oh, honey, I got depression. My sister got depression. My whole family is depressed. He's going to be fine. She took her son. That was the last time I saw him because on 4th of July, 2020, 2008, 2021, 2008, 4th of July, in front of his entire family doing a barbecue, he put a double barrel shotgun in his mouth and pulled the trigger. He was not okay. Mm. That was my second contact with suicide. I was like, okay, is this some kind of what? Coincidence. That's what you do. That's what you say. You don't think ever that this is a thing. And then I joined the Air Force. When I fast forward a few more years, I joined the Air Force. And then I started seeing almost every second or third kid was coming to see me with depression. Suicidal ideation, cutting, anxiety. Someone jumped off a five-story building. One kid took his friend's mother's bag of Xanax and drank, the, took the whole thing and slept for 36 hours. One other kid cut her stomach. I mean, it was just, just crazy. So I asked my nurse, I said, is it me? Or, I mean, do I smell a certain way? Why are these kids coming to see me? And I thought it was one or two kids per day. He said, no, doctora, it's three or four kids per day. So I asked my other doctor, I said, Dr. Molina, Kepasa, what's going on? I asked Dr. Molina, I said, how many patients do you see a day that are depressed? Dr. Molina said, como dos o tres per month. I'm like, no. He said, yes. I'm like, so it's me then. And then one of my patient's mom said, well, maybe it's your spirit. Maybe you have a healing spirit. And so that was the first blog I wrote on Kevin MD was if pediatrician finds her healing spirit. And that was shared like 1,000 times. I was like, wait, maybe there's something here. Maybe I should look further into this. And then I had sort of doubting if this is what I'm supposed to do. Just sit down and treat penicillin, strep through with penicillin. And I was already kind of like 20 something years old as a doctor anyway. So I was like getting restless. And then I said to myself, self, let's see if this is a fluke. And then it happened. Little Miguel, we're going to call him Miguel, came to see me with his mother, seven years old. His mom said, I don't know what you got to do, doctor, but you got to do something because he tried to hang himself twice. I was like, that's it. And so I came home that day and I thought I'd seen a ghost. And my youngest son remarked to mom, you look like you saw a ghost. I said, you know what? I think I saw a ghost. I saw a little boy that should be dead, but it wasn't. And that day I called my people. I said, where I was working, I said, guys, I need to take one day off in a week, just one day off every week. 
I think I need to go because my son said, well, I said, I didn't know what to do because he said, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know. You know, he said, well, you could come to my school and talk to the kids. And I was like, oh, I can. And so I asked the people that work and they were like, it took three weeks to decide. And they said, no, we need you to work full time. We can't give you a day off. And I was like, no, you, no, you don't have to. Don't worry about it. Deuces. I'm out of here. And I literally quit my job because it was like something. And I went back and saw all of these signs I've been getting over the years. It's like, you know, the proverbial story in the Bible where Samuel said, here I am, Lord, send me. He kept hearing the name and he finally said, I am here. Send me. What do you need me to do? And that's what happened. And so that was where the speaking career was born. I literally quit my job cold turkey. I didn't have another job because I needed to go get this message out there so people can start looking at what's going on. Why does a seven-year-old child want to kill himself? Mm. And then it turned out that the youngest child to kill themselves ever in the history of mankind that we know of was only five. And in America, it's two six-year-old girls. So this is not something that is like really rare. Yeah. Well, it's incredible to hear that the call came after you, the call for help, right? I've worked in many years, many times with the Trevor Project. And what I've learned is how powerful it is when young people have an ally because they don't feel like they have a place to turn and they're not understood. They're not heard. So it's a beautiful message that your, your TED Talk gives. I'll, I'll make sure we post it in the show notes. But the thing that struck me about this is that this isn't the, the last calling you had. So during the beginning of 2020, the world changed on everyone, not only because it was a pandemic, but because I think that uh, an awakening happened. Let's call it an awakening. Let's make it as positive as possible for mm -hmm. people to start to stand up for something that has been going on for years, centuries, mm -hmm. right? It is not new. And so you talk about in your book how you, you just felt like you had to write about how to teach your children about racism. Tell us why, where that book started and why did you feel so called to, even though you were so passionate about talking about suicide and helping suicide prevention, to kind of make a, a change in the middle of the 2020 to talk about that? Well, ironically, it's ironic rather that we're talking about this on today, right? I don't know when this is going to be published, but today's, you know, Decision Wednesday, I guess. I don't know what they call it. Yeah. But with all the stuff that's happening today in Washington, D.C., it's so critical that we speak out and it's so important, right? But also it's just great that we're doing it today. Coincidences, I mean, it kind of gives me chills. But ironically, my third book was, is called, the third book is actually called What If My Child Is a Bully? Mm. So that book is still in my computer, unfinished, because while I was working on that book, then George Floyd's murder happened. And then when George Floyd's murder happened, I realized that this is not something, like you said, that's new, but it's now like on the biggest stage for everyone to see. And I wasn't going to say anything until my two, two of my three sons went running in the neighborhood. And the two, the, we grew, they grew up here. I mean, we've been here for about 10 years now in, in San Antonio, Texas. And they, all three of them went to school here. And yeah, we're one of four, I think, black families, I think, in my neighborhood. But my kids have been standing on the bus stop in this neighborhood. They've been going to school in this neighborhood. So I know the police didn't escort my kids home that I, I know that the police did not do that in the neighborhood where they live. And they were wearing their running clothes. They had earphones on. They were obviously brothers running. I know the police didn't follow my kids home. I ran out of the house that day, but the police guy, I would have probably gotten killed because the police cruiser had left because they walked into the house looking buzzed. I'm like, guys, what's, what's going on? You know, when you know your kids, which is one of the things I talk about when I use my mnemonic talk, T is tune in to the right radio frequency of your child. I'm like, wait, kids, what's going on? Why do you guys look? 
You just came back from exercising. The elders didn't even speak to me, went straight to their room and stayed there. The baby said, well, mom, police cruiser kind of sort of, you know, just escorted us home. I'm like, what? What do you mean escorted you home? How? So needless to say, I said, okay, enough of the niceness. I'm going to say something because I have tres hijos and I'm not going to apologize for that. And so I went on a crazy rant on Facebook that got like 5,000 views in like while I was doing the rant. I was like, dear white people, these are my sons and I'm not going to apologize for them being three black boys. I'm not going to have a conversation with my sons. I'm not. I'm not going to tell them anything about how to be themselves. This has got to stop. So that night I cried till about 3 a.m. in the morning. I said, you know what? That's it. I'm going to write this as a blog. So I wrote a blog that was called 15 Commandments on How to Teach Your Children About Race Relations. That was a blog. And then the blog was shared like 16,000 times because, of course, it was, it was a fire that needed to burn already. And someone, one person in the blog comment section said, this will make a good, a great book, something like that, in one of the Facebook groups or something. And I was like, you're right. And so I converted it into 21 commandments instead of how to teach your children about racism straight up, you know, no long story in there. Because I realized that as a pediatrician, the least I can do is work with the people that I work with, which is the little ones. But it's not for me to teach them. I need mm. Karen to teach her kids about racism, not me. You know what I mean? I need you to, to do that difficult thing that you've been wanting us to do for so long. And so here's how to do it. First of all, talk to yourself. You cannot put your child's mask on first. You cannot come from a place of empty. You must fill your cup. And if you come from a place of abundance, then you can teach yourself, your child that much better because kids are already talking about racism. And the second thing to do is find out what your kids know already. Because a lot of times they already know, but they don't want to talk about it because I don't know what rules are in your house, right? And so things like that, easy things to do, nothing hard at all. It's not anything difficult. It's just, first of all, accepting that I am human. And so we should all first be humanists, right? I am breathing, I'm living, and then my skin pigment is only that. If you scratch it a little bit, it's going to bleed red blood like yours. And what makes you think that your skin pigment is superior anyway? And so it was like an in-your-face kind of book like here. Do these 21 things and just maybe, maybe the world, the next generation or the generation after that might, might get it. But you have to start early when they're in your belly, even if you have to. But it starts from your own mindset. That's from your own mindset. That's amazing. We talked about the power of books, books that we both read that we're reading to make a change. What's the power for you as an author by writing a book? What comes up for you? Like what I know it serves others as it's a book to teach or serve, but what do you find is the, the opportunity for you as you're writing it to help you grow and change? I think it's just to tell the stories as they come to me. I think every single day, I probably have an idea of a book, like every single day. And it hasn't always been like that. The, there's a Native American proverb that says, the wolf you feed is the wolf that gets bigger. And so the wolf you starve is the one that's not obviously going to die off. So my first book I wrote when I was six, but I didn't really feed the author in me until that first blog, which, you know, I was like, you know what? Why not? And so because I'm feeding the author in me, I keep getting ideas of books now. They just left, right, and center. And, you know, I have to kind of say, no, no, not now, not yet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And I have to keep telling them because I, you know, it's like, no, no, not now. I, I do want to write that one though. So I write it. So I go to my phone and I write it down. So, you know, the idea can stay there until such a time. I think it's just an opportunity to tell a story. My favorite phrase that I don't know if I made it up or not. I can't remember is we are connected 
by our story lines, not power lines. Story lines. Once you told your story and I told my, what did we see? We realized that, wait, there's, we have these things, this, that, that, and the other in common, you know, right. because we told our stories. And because it's your own story, you own it, it's unique, quality, your story, right? Nobody can take it from you. And Michelle Obama said that when people asked her, well, why are you so comfortable talking about, you know, sharing about difficulty in your marriage or mild depression? She's like, because it's my story. Like, it's authentically mine. So I can't not tell that which is mine. And therefore, you can't also take it from me because it's like <laughs> my fingerprints, right? They're mine. They're my stories. My history or your history is what you tell because it happens to you. So be fearless about telling. And if, if I, I don't know if I'm right or not, but I heard that 99% of people go to their graves with their books in their head. So that means of all the books we have in the world, that's just 1% of the people that should be writing. Right. That's the amazing truth is, and as you talked about these storylines that connect us, one of the themes I have this year, I always pick a word for the year. This year, my word is create, but, I, but my husband said he's trying to decide between two words, but one word he wants to apply is empathy. Something is really difficult in these times for, mm. and some for some. So I want to be someone who creates with empathy because mm. it's I'll tell hard. You something, though. I know most people, thanks to Brene Brown, they think empathy is good. And while I agree, empathy is good. I'll tell you the big brother of empathy is compassion. Mm. And you can't beat compassion. What empathy is, empathy is defined as I see you, I hear you. Compassion is I see you. I hear you. How can I help? And I think that extra bit there, how can I help, is where for the Christians who read the good book will say, when God created man, he said, let us create a helper. He never said, let's create a wife. We put the word wife. So if indeed the creator of the universe, if there's, if that's, that's the narrative you want to go by, said, let's create a helper for man. We'll call her woman, but he said a helper. So we are all put on this earth fundamentally to help. And isn't that so cool yeah. that out of, yeah, out of the empathy, you now take it a notch to now, what can I do to help you? And so my patients, the reason I'm saying that is because my patients, I only work with suicidal teenagers. So isn't it ironic that none of my kids, knock on wood in two years, have gone on to kill themselves? Because I see them. I hear them and I ask them, how can I help? And then whenever they're in a bad spot, you know what I make them do? I make them call five of their friends and say the exact same words. What can I do to make your day better? And right away, you're taking that cone of light from yourself into how can I help you? It makes me feel better when I help. Everybody feels better when they help. If the help is coming from the right place, but it makes you feel better anyway, right? So I make them go find someone to help. By the third person, they're usually feeling better. They're usually feeling better. So I don't know why I said that, but I said it. <laughs> well, I'm glad you did. Probably a lot of people need to hear that. I sure did. What, let's talk about the, the authors, the leaders, the, the people that maybe don't think that the 99%, not the 1% of authors listening, but the, the 99% of, I always tell people, you're an author the moment you tell yourself you are. Mm -hmm. So you look in the mirror and say, I'm an author. That's mm -hmm. it. No one's giving you permission. You're not going to. You just say it and then you become it. That's it. That's right. What advice do you have for those people sitting there going, yeah, this should be the year I write a book. What would you tell them? Just write it. Just do it. No better phrase in the world than just 
do it. And like you said, it's almost like I like to call myself a motivational mindset coach. Motivation comes from within. There are two kinds of motivation. There's intrinsic and and extrinsic. But ultimately, it's almost always intrinsic. Like you have to have a reason for doing something. Your motivation is your why. Like if you think it's too much, you will think yourself out of it. As better that, people will tend to overthink it. Oh, yeah, but if I write it, who's going to read it? So why don't you just pick one person, you, and write the book for you? Just because you can. My favorite phrase is, I'm doing it because, well, I can't, right? You can't tell me I cannot. I am the only one that can tell me that I cannot. And that is the power of the word no. I teach that class about the power of the word no. Too many of us are yes people. But I want you to remember that every time you say yes to someone else, you're essentially saying no to you. So maybe this is the year you say yes to me. And start like I did, write a blog. Right. Oh, you know what? Write a nice post on Facebook and then convert that into a blog and then convert it into a book. And I tell people all the time that where you can find inspiration is everywhere, is everywhere. Just write something. My favorite coach says the reason she writes is just because she doesn't like proofread her blog too many times. She just wants their words in it. She pushes it out because once you stay and start ruminating, I don't know, maybe I should put it this way. You'll find that a week later, you still haven't done it. And then the longer you wait, before you know it, it's February, like literally. And then it's March. And it's like, yeah, you know, I thought I was going to write a book. Mm-hmm. And no one is stopping you. Old school, get a book and write on a blank piece of paper and a notebook. Or better school, grab your Google Docs and just start writing. And don't think you have to be like a bestseller or whatever. Just write and just know that someone out there needs to hear your story. Imagine if I kept on seeing patients that afternoon. Mm. Just imagine that. And so that's kind of the worst case scenario is you're where you are. That is always the worst case scenario. That's ground zero. But what if you wrote a book and then an Terone is out there says, come on their podcast. What if? And you know, it's like, the day the History Channel called me, I just about dropped, I, I died. <laughs> I died and I went to heaven. I called my mom. I called Shaniqua. I called Boniqua. I said, guys, look, listen, it's happening. Because I stepped out in faith and I said, I'm going to go talk to my son's school about bullying. That's actually why this whole thing started. Most yeah. of the kids that come to see me and are suicidal, they are being bullied or they are being molested. And you saw that in my TEDx talk. Betrayal, that's the key. Trauma. Mm-hmm. So I don't even know what I was saying, but... You were talking about getting people to write. I think you're inspiring people to just write. Yeah, um, just, just do it. And you don't, it doesn't have to be a long book or a short book or a number of words book or best spelling book. Just push it out and be done with it. And thanks to KDP, you literally just have to press print. Like, no, rather publish. <laughs> and that's right. it. Isn't it never been more amazing to be a creator in the world? This is yeah. incredible. Like I can have a podcast. I can reach out to people I've never seen in person. We can dialogue about books. You know, I know a lot of people after listening to this are going to want to know a lot more about you. Maybe they could use your help if they have a, a, a teen or a child who is contemplating suicide. Where would they go to find more about your work? So I literally live on Facebook. And I know I just heard about this brand new shiny object called Clubhouse. I am not going to bite. I will not. <laughs> <laughs> it's another shiny object that I will not bite. but. 
I hang out on Facebook all the time. My first name is Uchenna, spelled U-C-H-E-N-N-A. My last name is Ume, but I changed my Facebook name to Dr. Uchenna Lizme, which is my middle initial Ume. I'm the only Lizme in the world. Like literally, I am the only person named Lizme in the world because my dad made the name up. So you can't, if you're a Lizme, you stole it from me because I'm 52 years young. So I know I came first. And then, so Dr. Uchenna Lizme Ume is my first, is my name on Facebook. Otherwise, if you Google Ask Dr. D-O-C-T-O-R Lulu, L-U-L-U, you will find everything about me, like literally. So my Instagram is Ask Dr. Lulu. My business page on Facebook is Ask Dr. Lulu. And then the momatrician is also my registered trademark in the U.S. So Dr. Lulu is a registered trademark of mine. And the momatrician, M-O-M-A, mom and pediatrician. So momatrician is also me. And I had to, for a long time, I just, I could not choose who am I? Am I a mom or am I a pediatrician? So I said, you know what? I can be both. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I'm glad. Other uh, than that, I am a, right now, since October of last year, 2020, I decided to switch and include life coaching in what I do. And I'm really primarily coaching physicians. I help them with self-prioritization. So putting self-care first, because that's one of the things that in my 30 years of being a doctor, that's one of the things that I know is usually missing. We put our patients first, we put our family next, we put our other family next and our bosses, our colleagues, and we are missing somewhere. But there's a problem with that. Physician suicide is at an all-time high. It's literally a pandemic. So one of my TEDx talks that will be coming out soon is that I'm talking about how the female physician suicide is a silent pandemic. And so I have been suicidal, me, myself, and I, on one random Sunday morning in November of 2015. So I know that I can coach someone who's like me because I let everything come before me. And that's why I teach a class about saying no. Just say, no, I don't have to do that, sir. Okay, you know what? I quit. <laughs> don't fire me. I quit. Because if I leave the equation, life goes on. So if I do all these things on my book to-do list, at what cost? And that's the problem. We need to ask ourselves, at what cost? I, have, I was talking to you earlier on about chronic pain and how, how I was carrying all this pain all over my body, diagnosed with fibro-freaking-myalgia. What? For 12 years, I've had that, but not anymore. And I know where that came from. A bad marriage, a toxic relationship. So I'm just saying... Not that doctors have bad marriages, but I know for me, I know why I was driving down that highway trying to go see God that day. And so I also coach physicians just to kind of help them just you know, take some, some of the things off your salad bowl for a minute and let's see you in there. And then we can come back from a place of abundance and then put back what needs to be put back when, if at all. Does that make sense at all? It does. Thank you. Dr. Lou, thank you so much. It's been such an honor. It- what a way to celebrate a day that could otherwise be so... It's a beautiful day because what has happened to Georgia, what, what has happened here in some ways. And, and despite all these things, I will remember this interview for bringing me joy. Thank you again for being a guest here. And we look forward for more books from you. Yay! Thank you for listening again to another episode of Authors Who Lead. We appreciate you being here and we hope you subscribe so you get this delivered to your device every week. And if you haven't left us a review, please do so. It really helps. 
And if you have a book in your heart, you've been wanting to write a book, please go to authorswholead.com and join us on this journey of becoming a published author.